0: Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. This program is produced weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Visit the website, christ-life.org, and be sure and visit our bookstore, and there you'll find so many of these great things that Warren Litzman left behind, so many great writings of his, tapes, videos. Check it out, christ-life.org. We've been in a conference that Warren did many years ago in South Africa, and we're going back to that conference. It's strong, it's powerful, and I think you're going to love it. Here's Warren.
1: Let's go on to another verse now. He deepens this consecration he's making to God. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the line that has always struck me as being most important. That's why I chose that line as the theme of this conference. The excellency of knowledge. Let's stop right there. What is the most excellent knowledge there is? Paul has several words for it. He says, One place I know in whom I have believed. That's a great knowledge. Galatians 2.20 is a great knowledge. I no longer live. Christ liveth in me. That's the greatest knowledge you could come to. The excellency of knowledge is the knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. Now the world has a knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. That's wonderful. That's historical, however. Same Jesus has returned to this earth to live in human beings. That's the greatest knowledge you get it? That's the excellency of knowledge. Not that Jesus came, born of a virgin, healed the sick, cast out devils, raised the dead. The greatest knowledge there is, is how this Jesus came in connection with you and I, 2,000 years later. Quite simple. He drinks the cup in Gethsemane, we're in Him. He dies on the cross, we die with Him. He's buried, we're buried with Him. He's resurrected, we're resurrected with Him. So the excellency of knowledge is not the historical Christ. That's good, that's wonderful, that He healed the sick and cast out devils and preached the kingdom message. But Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are not to know that Christ as our life. Well, we're not to know Him in the flesh. He also says believers are not to know each other in the flesh. See, that we're a world away from that kind of thing. Because we've got 300 and... I used to be one, so I can talk this way. We've got 360 different brands of Baptist alone listed in the encyclopedia. So we're a long way off from all of us being brothers. <laughs> not picking on the Baptist either. Just ever groups like that. The world like that. We're not to know each other. That's why when we leave these meetings each evening, the last for the day, we also always sing, I see Jesus in you as our benediction. Why? Because I want you to see that. You're, you're, they're brothers and sisters not because of what they believe, but because Christ lives in them. Don't you see that? That person sitting next to you there has Jesus living in them. Well, you say, yeah, they kind of have the Spirit of Christ. No, Paul never let it lay there. He said in two different places. One place he was definite when he said, I forgive you in the person of Christ. Who are you, Paul? I'm the person of Christ in this human form. That's the way I forgive you. See, that's a whole different language. And so he says, we know Jesus no longer in the flesh. He's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Wonderful Jesus of Nazareth. But he says, that's not the same as the Christ in you. Now, there's only one Christ. And the way we differentiate between them is simple. It's Christ in two different bodies. The first body He was in is a body given to Him by Mary, and the body He's in today is the body of Christ called the church. That's Christ. This is Christ alive here. This is where Jesus is. But people under the law can't accept that because that's what's written in the Scriptures. Under the law, people make laws under themselves. And so they can't accept that. They say, well, I've got to feel Him. I've got to to have this or that. Wonderful. I like feeling too. But I like a knowing better. Because when I look at you, I see a human vessel, an old clay pot that Jesus lives in. Paul made it very definite. You've looked at sinners and said they're of the devil. you at despots and and, uh, mean people and say they're of the devil. I look at you and say they are God. They are of God because Christ lives in it." So Paul had a different language for this sort of thing. The excellency of knowledge. Where does knowledge start then? Does knowledge start with the things that are happening in the world? Einstein. He's supposed to be a smart man. Heard a little story about him the other day. He got on a train and he had on an overcoat and a coat under it and the conductor come along wanting the ticket and he fumbled around and fumbled around and he couldn't get to the ticket. So the conductor said, Oh, we know you, Mr. Einstein, and we know where you're going. But Einstein said, Yeah, but I don't know who I am without this ticket because it tells me what I need to know. And I've always remembered that because you don't know who you are and you don't know where you're going without the Word. And the Word you believe must be intensified, Word that speaks to you definitely. And that's what Paul's epistles are all about. That's the excellency of knowledge. That's the knowledge that I can't give you. That's why I'm not talking about you and I. We're talking about Paul, and we'll get to that a little later, of why we're talking about Paul in this respect. Because he says why. He says why we should listen to him. But the knowledge you need is a knowledge that comes from your searching the Scriptures yourself and letting the Holy Spirit talk to you. See, he talks through this book. Once in a while he may talk to a preacher, but he talks through this book every time you go into it. And you need to get into the scriptures that have to do with you. And there's nobody in the Bible that has the scriptures that pointedly speak to you as one who has Christ in them, other than Paul's epistles. John has some good words in that. Peter even has one or two words. But you need to get in Paul's epistles because that's what speaks to you. This excellent knowledge is there, it's not somewhere else. Paul gave his mind to that knowledge. The question is, when will we ever give our mind to the knowledge of what has happened to us at the cross? When will we give our mind to the knowledge that Christ has been birthed in us? We've been born again. When will we give a mind to it? That's the excellency of knowledge. That's something God didn't force. As I told you yesterday, He did not force the soulish part of man to be saved. That was Old Testament. They needed the law, and still we're under the law in our soulish part, most of us. But that's not what saved us. Christ was joined to our spirit. That's salvation. He doesn't give us a law. He's not going to force it on you. God's not going to force anybody to do what is right. You understand that? I deal with people who don't understand that. I, I've been uh, ministering to the Alcoholics Anonymous group in California. And of all things, they got a hold of our book on Paul. And they said, this is the first writing we've ever seen that needs to be coupled with what they call the big book. You ever heard of that, the big book the alcoholics use? So they coupled it. In California, they've coupled our book on Paul with the big book. They have to study the big book, and then they go into Paul. And now some of them have picked up our videos, and they're showing those to the alcoholics. Every day, those alcoholics have to go through a video. Got to change their minds. Got to change their mind. The reason they drink is they think they're drunkards. They think they're alcoholics. It's a mind change that's necessary to go with Christianity. God's not going to do it for you. He's not going to force you to change your mind because that's where the love affair is. Nobody wants forced love. God's not going to force you to change your mind and do what is right. He's already saved you. He already has made a point. He's not dependent on you anyhow. He's depending on Christ in you. That's why He made Christ to be your righteousness because He knew none of us had ever become righteous enough to earn what He's done for us. That's the excellency of knowledge. Oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit get it across to you. That's what you need to know. You need to know that. The world is dying and going to hell because they don't know this excellency of knowledge. It has to do with Jesus Christ. The world is going to make fun and lambast Jesus Christ because they don't know who He is yet. They don't know what He is to us. They don't know what a Christian is. They're earmarking us. They're tagging us with a false identity because they don't know who they who Christians are, and we don't even know who we are. Most Christians don't know who they are. Excellency of knowledge. The knowledge is of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The knowledge is of Christ. Remember, the knowledge is of Christ. What Christ? The Christ that lives in you. Anybody can read the historical record of Jesus of Nazareth. But the knowledge is of the Christ that's in you. That's different. That requires a whole different setting, a whole different background, a whole different understanding You must get what I'm saying. What Christianity has been has not been this excellent knowledge based on Jesus Christ. If you ever see through that, you're going to see a life ahead you never dreamt you had to live. Because I'm talking to you about an earth-changing situation that must come to Christianity. Sooner or later, we must know this Christ who has been placed in us the moment we were saved. Excellent knowledge. Let's move on. For whom, he says, verse 8, For this Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but done, that I may win Christ. Would you be ready to give up everything religiously that's happened to you? Would you be ready to do that? I'm always hearing people tell me that come into the Christ life, well, i got a background over here in this kind of religion and that kind of church. That's hard on them because they still have relatives going there. All their grandkids go there. That's a deep thing with them. They're not going to cross that. Would you be willing to give all that up for the excellent knowledge of Christ that lives in you? Where would you start? Where would you start changing the inner life, your soulish life, the part of you that is being saved. Not the part of you that's saved, that spirit, but the part of you that's being saved. Where do you start? What do you offer to God because this Christ lives in you? What do you move out of the way so Christ could be your life? Your whole life, total life. Be your all. Paul uses that two or three times. Is He all? Is He all? Christ all? Is He everything? That's not going to change where you work unless God changes you. Because where you work needs to know that Christ is all in you. That's not going to change your profession unless God changes it. Your profession. I had a lady in our church one time, in our fellowship. She was a concert pianist that got a hold of a piece of literature and had to find out about this new life in Christ. She played with big symphony orchestra. She was somebody. She lived on the piano eight hours a day, or was supposed to. I don't know if she did that every day. That's a commitment to be hard to keep. But the message was she lived eight hours a day on the piano. That was her life. Nothing else was in her life but the piano until she heard this message. And it came in this way. It was a Wednesday night service. and had a big crowd sitting there and no musicians had showed up and we had a hundred of them I know that wanted to play the piano or organ. None of them showed up. So I was right past my time to start and I went back over the audience and I saw her sitting there. And I thought, boy, I've never asked her to do anything before. But I asked her to, come up and play the piano for us to have a song service. So I went down to where she was and I said, would you mind playing the piano for us? I can't find a musician here anywhere and we'd appreciate it if you'd come and play for us. And she looked at me very sternly and said, no sir, I won't play for you. Well, I had no words, and I said, okay. Turned and walked away. We had the service. Finally a musician showed up and After the service, she came up to me at the platform and she said, "Uh, I guess you want to know why I was so harsh in my statement. I said, well, you have a right to whatever you want to do, the way I look at it. No, she said, when I got hold of this message and realized Christ lived in me, she said the biggest thing in my life I had to set aside was my piano playing. She said it was my money, it was my future, it was my fame but she said I had to set it aside because she said my first thought was if Christ lives in me and I don't know him I ought not to spend any more time on anything in my life than learning Christ she said I'll set the piano aside and she said the day may come that I'll go back to the piano but she said until I know Christ as my all And know him as the piano player. I don't play the piano. What a testimony. What a word of the Lord to me. Because that socked me right in the jaw. That's what we ought to be. That's the way we ought to live. But you know, people today have such a commitment to life that they figure God wants them to take care of all these various things, and I just don't have time for that. So we're at that point now with Paul. How deep does a commitment go? How deep does it go with this lady pianist? How deeply does it go? How, How much is Christ in you? What is He to you? What does it mean to you to have Christ in you? You see, the day came she picked up her piano playing again, but with a new testimony, it is not I that live, it's Christ. Christ still liked to play the piano. But she had to give him that place because her mind had never done that. That is what a Christian is. That has nothing to do with church membership, water baptism, talking in tongues, healing the sick and casting out devils. It has nothing to do with that. That has to do with Christ living in a human being. Christ lives there. Now, he's, verse 7, he counted everything lost for Christ. And then he says in verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things. Let's stop there again. I have suffered the loss of all things. I gave you the illustration of a concert pianist. She suffered the loss of the biggest thing in her life, but that was all things to her. Most people don't have an all things wrapped up in one thing. Most don't. Most have a more regulated kind of life. They've got family. They've got job. They've got kids. They've got grandkids. They've got uh, things to do. It's kind of a balanced life. But we're talking about a concert pianist who took what was her life and set it aside. This is what Paul is saying here. He took what was his life. His life. Everything he did, it was outer, all outer, but everything he did was his life. That was his life. Being a rabbi, being a lawyer, persecuting the church. That was his life. He took what was his life and in his mind suffered the loss of it. And then in his mind he counted it but done. You know what that is. He counted it done. He didn't just suffer the loss of a good thing. Well, I've heard preachers say this. Well, I was making a lot of money as a used car salesman and God called me into this ministry and I hardly make a dime anymore. That's not what it was. He suffered the loss of what he was. And he stomped on it and made it but dung. Now, he was different from the concert pianist. She merely laid it aside until Christ became her whole life. She couldn't do that in one meeting. It took time. That's what bothers me about people who come to conferences. They say, well, I went to that conference once. You think you got it all figured out then? You think you got it then? You think it works now? Oh, it takes time. It takes time for you to set aside your life so that Christ can take over that empty space. Much of your life will come back. You'll be a better mechanic, a better lawyer, a better teacher, a better housewife, a better mother. But it will be Christ as you. That's different. That's what a Christian is. But Paul went the whole way. He said, I count all of it but dung, unusable again. Now that's that's commitment. Not everybody can do that. I don't expect everybody to do that. I don't want husbands and wives separated so they become more righteous. I don't want kids to give up on the family and go out and do their own thing because they're more righteous. I just want Jesus to be who He already is to God in you. That's what I want. So Paul suffered the loss of all of it for the excellency of knowledge. I want you to leave this conference with one thought, and that is, if Christ really does live in me, can I give Him as much thought as to how to use my life as I give to my automobile, my computer, or my kids? When do people begin to make a change, make a commitment? When does it start? When does it get real? It has to start with you making a decision. If He lives in me, what kind of a person am I to exist without Him? Count it but done. The last line there says that I'm a... Win Christ. I'm going to tell you what that means to me. Law people say, well, see there, he didn't have Christ till he earned Him. No. What's happening in his soulish part, his outer part, has nothing to do with what God did in him. That he may win Christ means that he already lives in me. When am I going to be the winner of his life? When will I have the excellency of knowledge? to set aside my old life and count it but dung, When will I win this Christ that's in me? See, I told you a while ago, people are going to be saved and go to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross if they simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to go to heaven. But they never will have enjoyed the Christian life until these truths that Paul gives us come about. That's when you're going to really live. I don't think most Christian people are really living on this earth. I think they're so bound by troubles and trials, and and, uh, that's why so many of them go to miracle meetings. They have no concept of who they are. They have no concept of Christ living in them. And if somebody can show them a shortcut to a better life, whether it's the reading of a new book or whether it's going to a miracle meeting, whatever it is, If I can have a shortcut, bless God I want it, I have no concept of Christ in me. Oh, I'm full of the Holy Ghost. When I go to meetings, I shout and sing. That's another thing. That's still in your soulish part. That's not your live spirit, Christ working through you. Because that takes a mind to know and understand. And that's what he's talking about here. You win him by giving him position and place in your life. That's the winner. I talk to people all the time that are in desperate situations. We had a lady I stuck close to about uh, the last three weeks. She went to the hospital, and I, before I came here, I was at the hospital every day praying for her. She was unconscious most of the time, a lot of the time. I told her several times about how she was a winner. I prayed that God would heal her because I believe Christ is a healer. But I said, you're a winner because you know Christ lives in you. You know He's there. She's been under the message for years. You know Christ is there. Oh, she would smile through her tears and say, yes, 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 I know that, I know that. And I would say, greater is He that is in you than anything outside of you. That's the winner. That's the person who wins Christ. They're the winners. They've gone through the whole maze of human living and finally come to the ultimate point that Christ in me, even in my moment of death, is greater than death, the devil, disease, or the world. That's what a winner is. A winner. Verse 9, be found in him, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Now you see, if you listen to me, I take a statement like that seriously. I have allowed the entire constitution of my understanding of God to be changed by a single line like that. Because I believe every person that has a righteousness of their own is still under the law. The law will kill you spiritually. The law will nullify the Christ that is in you. Because Jesus won't fight the law. He has already had the law nailed to His cross and it's dead. It's dead. Jesus in you doesn't fight anything. If you don't want Him, He'll still stay there, but He won't argue with you. All your arguments are with the Holy Spirit. He's not your life, but He's working in your soulish part to try to tell you what to do. And I'll tell you, when you have a trouble or a trial, usually the first thought you have comes from the Holy Spirit. The second thought will nullify it. Paul says that in any issue of life, he wants to be found in Christ. What is he saying? This, this is his ultimate. Difficult words here. But he's saying it doesn't matter what happens to me now. It doesn't matter where my life takes me. It doesn't matter how I live. I want, in every, in, in every issue of life, every CNS gang, the old circumstance and situation gang, In every CNS event, I want to be found in Christ. I don't want to be outside. I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to think any other way. I don't want to do anything else. I want to be found in Christ. Think about it. In Christ. Found in Him. Now, He doesn't want any of His own righteousness. Most of us have done this unerringly. We didn't intend to. We didn't know what we was doing. But I pray for a lot of people. I used to pray for thousands. But I pray for a lot of people, and I've always found people saying, "Well, the Lord has always taken care of me." I tell you, the Lord has always healed me when I was sick. The Lord's always met our need. Be careful that your righteousness springing up, because behind that statement is not the Lord doing it. But you believe in and you being used that he could do it. Hmm. Paul goes deep here. He says, Just because I give up everything and suffer the loss of it, I am not being righteous. You must be careful that you don't feel righteousness over everything that must be done that you don't want to do. That's a redundant statement, isn't it? You must be careful that the things you don't want to do that you go ahead and do doesn't spring from your righteousness because your righteousness isn't worth a dime. Not having my own righteousness. You see, that's what many of you are going to suffer the loss of if you really turn over to this Christ that's in you, your mind. Because you're going to suffer the loss of your righteousness. You're going to suffer the loss. I used to, I tell alcoholics, I say, don't think you did a good thing if you went a day without drinking. Nobody, not even God,'s interested in your righteousness. And I have to say that to believers God's not interested in your righteousness. Why? He made Christ your righteousness. Paul would say two or three times, not having my righteousness, no righteousness of my own. Why does he say that? Because he knows that our righteousness isn't worth anything to God. When God put Christ in us, he stopped looking to us for righteousness and He made Christ to be our righteousness. Not having my own righteousness, He says. But He says, I want that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. The faith of Christ. Oh, if that wasn't in the King James Bible, I would have never been gripped by the Christ life as I am. And the first thing all new translations did is change that statement, the faith of Christ. First thing they did, first new translations that came out changed that because the translators didn't see the Christ life. How in the world could a human being have faith when the Bible says it's the faith of Christ, it's the life of Christ, it's the righteousness of Christ? It's the redemption of Christ. It's the sanctification of Christ. It is never ours in grace. Never in grace is it us. Never in grace is it me. In grace, it's Christ. That's what a Christian is. I get all excited over grace. Such a wonderful thing. Faith of Christ. Faith of God. Five times, Paul says, when he mentions faith, it is the faith of Christ. He never talks about the faith of the believer in grace. He talks about faith in Hebrews, but that's the faith of the old generation of people. He never talks about the faith of the believer. Jesus of Nazareth under the law would have to say, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you do great things. I never did anything like moving a mountain, at least really. So I never even got mustard seed faith. But what operates through me now is the faith of Christ. That's what grace did. God took the monkey off the back of the believer at the cross, of the believer having to diligently and forcefully try to get faith. You ever go through that? Oh, I went through it a number of times, trying to get more faith, more faith. I never knew whether I got more faith or not unless he did what I wanted. If he didn't do what I wanted, I sure wasted a lot of time. However, I learned in all of that. That was a learning process. But when grace came, he didn't depend on our faith anymore. If he's not going to depend on your righteousness, why in the world would he depend on your faith? Well, you say, how in the world would I live without that kind of faith? Live like a Christian. It's a new life, it's a different existence. It's all different. And as long as we're hung up on the past, we're going to get to this in a while, but as long as we're hung up, we'll never come into this grace. Grace affords us a relationship beyond all description. It's a new world. It's a new life. Grace is not the absence of sin in people's life. Grace is a total dependent upon what Christ did. It's not a dependency upon us. In grace, I'm not living a life that I can do anything I want to and not go to hell. That's law people's idea about it. Grace is me being totally dependent upon Christ. I need no other dependency. I need to depend on nothing else. I can depend on Him. He's my life. He's my faith. He's my power. He's my strength. I can do nothing without Him. That's the mind change we're coming to. Along with the fact we're coming to the noon hour and I must quit. Past the noon hour. I'm going to pick up with this and go on. Hope you come back again. If you don't come back, I'll know what you think of it. (laughs)
0: We're going to stop right here. We'll pick up next time where we left off as Warren Litzman continues this conference in South Africa that we have via tape that he did years ago, and it is powerful. We hope you're enjoying it. Please, again, let us invite you to go to our website, christ-life.org, read about this In Christ message, and be sure and look for some great material that Warren left behind, wonderful books and videos and tapes, all like you hear on this podcast each week, you can have these wonderful things, these wonderful treasures in your home. We want to thank Valerie Hill for doing our Twitter account, Tammy Laycock for doing our weekly podcast notes. Of course, we want to thank Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful podcasts. And Teresa Ferraro, thank you. She's our wonderful producer from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, Loving the Christ Life.